This is Jesse McDougall with the Global Business Podcast. Today I have with me Stephen McQueenie, the CEO of SG Modular in the UK, a company that manufactures smart, quick building solutions for housing, apartments, student accommodation, offices, and utilities globally. Stephen's firm has been described by the New York Times as the builders of the perfect refugee camp. With housing shortages, housing bubbles, and climate resiliency at the top of minds worldwide, SG Modular is at the front of an industry in transformation. Stephen's firm builds large factories through to tiny houses, with an emphasis on extended lifespans, passive, net zero, sustainability, and comfort and affordability for end users. Their flexible, modular plans are disruptive to the traditional construction industry, already under pressure to reduce their environmental footprint and a nearly global phenomenon of underinvestment in skilled tradesmen to staff building and construction projects. Stephen talks about addressing humanitarian crises, hurricane-proof housing you can assemble with your family, and one of the buildings he is most proud of, the world-class orphanage they built in Turkey. Hello, Stephen, and welcome to the Global Business Podcast. I really appreciate you joining today. Jesse, thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, it's a pleasure. I really enjoyed, we we met just a short while ago and you described your business and I thought uh, more people would want to know about it. It's quite an exciting platform that you've built. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one in that we we founded about 10 years ago and we were heavily focused on supplying uh, accommodation for refugees uh, around the globe, but predominantly in in Syria, uh, uh, Turkey, uh, and then uh, Middle East and, and a bit of Africa. Uh, and what we saw was that certainly from a client's perspective, the investors who were donating the, the monies into these camps was that their understanding of short-term accommodation perhaps equaled tentage and very, very poor accommodation systems. Uh, and what we saw was an opportunity to, to flex our brains a little bit, I suppose, and, and deliver something that we, we knew would last for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, because technology allows that these days. I think from, from that process, and we delivered, uh, I think some, somewhere roughly around 168,000 bed spaces in the end uh, between Syria and Turkey. Uh, and then we started looking at our technology. We felt that we could drive it a bit harder and develop new systems within our, our modular package. So that's, that's where we came from, basically, delivering large-scale camp and refugee systems to charitable players in the park. But because of that, we felt that we could then take our technology elsewhere. And we invested time and, and a little bit of cash into bringing our technology forward to, to where we thought we would like to be in the marketplace. You, you described initially to me your technology as social impact housing, but actually you have quite a range. Maybe you could describe some of the range of offerings that you have at SG Modular. Yeah, of course. I think if we go back right to the start, modular manufacturing and, and modern methods of construction, I think, has developed very much so over the past two or three years across the globe. And people see it as the new kid on the block. Our thoughts are that actually uh, modular manufacturing has been around for hundreds of years. We've been building boxes, popping them on wheels, and then moving them from A to B. No more so than America, where you know people came, landed on the East Coast, and then and then migrated to the West Coast in boxes. So our view was that we would be designing a family of systems with the starting point being social impact housing, because it's very close to our, our hearts and our ethos as a company. But to allow the technology then to be really uh, developed out so that it can meet all the possible requirements for buildings in, in the modern world. And that meant developing light gauge steel systems that design once, use many times. And that's where our modular advanced kit systems came from. 
I think it's important to note that there's there's a lot of innovation in there, but then there are an awful lot of modular companies doing exactly the same, piling in the innovation at the moment to meet those requirements. I think at the core of the system is social impact housing because that's where we see globally the greatest need for sure. But also when you build impact housing, you should be at the same time designing the, the social infrastructure that supports those homes. Uh, and that means schools and offices and shops and and all the other associated buildings that, that may be needed. And, and it's something that's occasionally forgotten when, when you start a project up. If I take, for instance, the Irish social housing project that we, we did through a a government procurement process. They chose SG Modular. And with that, we built 17 small, high technical homes for displaced people and families. But at the same time, the, the client decided that there ought to be a visitor centre and a support centre there for the, the families and the individuals that, that would be living. And so we used the same technology that we built out the, the small homes we use that same technology for the visitor centre, which was a 130 metre squared offices and, and social hub where people could go and be in a safe environment, but very much in keeping with the um, the outward design of the total project. So, yeah, we've, we've worked hard on that and feel that it's something that should be a, a consideration for any proposal that we, we put to our, our clients and partners. So you mentioned light gauge steel. Can you maybe describe, just for somebody who's not very familiar with modular housing, where do the economies come from? Like why modular, in, a, yeah. in essence? I think um, if you look at the, the total construction market globally at the moment, the key issues that the traditional construction market are, are, are facing, the challenges, are around trained individuals for electrical, plumbing, bricklaying, etc. The challenges of cost, given our post-COVID lives of um, procurement and supply and, and shipping. And then the environmental challenges that we all face on a, on a day-to-day basis. The notion of the carbon zero economy that everybody's signed up to and, and, and everybody appears to be waving the flag, but I don't think an awful lot of work has been done on the detail of delivering these uh, environmental lines that we've, we've drawn in the sand. I think that modular has a place within the construction industry, of course. And I think that with a modular manufacturer, at our core, we're, we're looking to make savings, driving it through scale projects in a factory environment. On one side, we should be able to show increased health and safety benefits for our workers working in that enclosed environment and, and not on a wet, windy uh, construction site. But at the other end of the scale, we ought to be addressing certainly the environmental and sustainability issues that are prevalent throughout our society today. And I think that's where modular should and does come to the fore, being able to reuse, recycle, because there is a lot less wastage. If you think about large traditional construction sites, there's an awful lot of movement of materials, not necessarily just on the site itself, but getting it to the site. And if you look at the developing nation and some of these countries with huge infrastructure programs, you know, starting up right now, you need to cut down on, on shipping, you need to cut down on, on road movements, you need to cut down on those fossil fuels, etc., etc. So it just stands to reason if you've got a, um, a modular factory on site knocking out 300, 400 units of the same versions, then you're going to get some fantastic environmental pluses on that project. And they're measurable as well. You know, this isn't uh, pie in the sky. And it's not the waft of a, a magician's finger here. These are quantifiable. I think as well, with modular, we, we tend to think differently. And, and if you look at light gauge steel, and of course, wood is in the mix, hybrid projects are in the mix as well. But we'll, we'll focus on light gauge steel because I think that's what we know. Light gauge steel, you go to my technical people, my architects and my engineers, 
the amount of work it's it's the the very serene duck um floating over the lake uh, and underneath the legs are going four thousand you know beats to the the minute all our efforts and all our development has gone into making sure that the light gauge steel is easy to to work with on the construction site so if you think of it in in my terms as a as a big meccano set and then you have add-ons you have stuff like doors and, and windows and insulation and renders now if you can join all of those together in that factory environment and then move it to the project site then that's a win and there are economies of scale of, of course at the same time whilst we are light gauge steel experts we, we like to think of ourselves as material experts because we're constantly constantly changing the makeup of our systems to match our clients expectations no more so so in the the government arena i think we've seen a really early pickup on this net zero passive carbon neutral program that we we talked about right at the start of the the, the cast it's now very clear with certain governments that they, they haven't just signed the piece of paper they've actually inked it you know they they are following through for instance in europe we're only delivering net zero office builds at the moment and that means that we've got to be very much up to date with materials um, with our supply chains with the latest innovations from other manufacturers such as windows you know um, we have a, a, a long roster of window suppliers but only a few of them can give me u values of 0.15 and below and, and to achieve that, that the window has to be filled with argon gas. So I'm not a window expert, but we've got that line of uh, suppliers and partners who are, who can you know, come to us. We, it's an open door policy for our suppliers and our clients you know, in, in our factories. Come on in and if you've got an idea and it adds to the, the total of the program and it's something that the client wants, then we're gonna have to pick up on it. And if we've already picked up on it, hopefully we're, we're slightly ahead of the curve. So let's drill down for a minute in, into what we mean by a low environmental footprint housing. Go to the granularity of a single house. What do we mean by net zero? What do we mean by passive? Yeah, I think that as soon as I say passive, people can see dollar signs or pound signs, cha-ching. Those days are gone, actually. I, I think passive is the norm. Net zero is the norm because it's all about the materials that you use. So better insulation, better fitting doors and windows, some very technical insulation points like the argon gas. But then you have some major players in the insulation world, people like Kingspan, for instance, who have heavily invested into their technologies and, and produce some fantastic kits that we then use in our, in our homes. If we take impact housing, wherever you are in the globe, impact or social housing shouldn't shouldn't carry a stigma. It's not so long ago in the UK that uh, on large developments, which had to carry a, a certain percentage of of social housing, their doors were a different colour to everybody else who were homeowners. And that's in my lifetime and yours, Jesse. I think just about. Now that's you know I'm, I'm smiling, but it's it's just so wrong. We sh social no impact housing that's what we do we don't do social housing we do impact housing we want to make a difference i think there is a it's something fundamental to any of our societies that it, if uh, you provide impact housing then it shouldn't be substandard it shouldn't cost more to run because the walls are thinner uh, it should have if anything it should have better insulation than uh, homes that are on the open market to be honest because these individuals and these families are, are the ones that that need to save the pennies the most and if they're if you've given them gas central heating or you've given them thin walls or not very good windows and you know you've stuck them onto a, a, a an oil grid or, or whatever then you, you you're you're surely you're failing uh, in, in your um, responsibilities to these families and at the same time you know these families shouldn't have substandard homes they 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 should have the very best homes because it's there the technology is there 
and it's small things you know if if um, and we we have concentrated one of our divisions on um, small housing but we don't like to call it small because you can make a small house very large inside by very simple changes to the design and it's stupid stuff you know rather than having 2.5 meters as a as a head roof space you know go to 2.7 build open plan ensure that the uh, ventilation is properly engineered for that home make use of every space properly and i and i think that's that's going to be the norm as as we are now delivering small homes to to ireland to to canada to europe and to the middle east and north africa so i think that you know we must always choose to do better and if the materials are there and the technology is there why why wouldn't you go down that route for impact homes it's a basic we thought you mentioned the genesis of your company related to humanitarian projects and in fact i think the first one was in syria is that correct yeah we built several large refugee camps in syria i think the specifications said that they should only run for a couple of years and of course these um world challenges tend to go on a, a lot longer than everybody thinks so we built homes that would last the, the test of time um, and i think yeah two or three years they were meant to be up some of them went now for 12 15 years it's important too is that you know our, our name is going to be on these systems or, or uh, our partners names because we, we we manufacture for a lot of partners who then add their own design twist to 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 our basic systems and if you're putting your name out there, you, you ought to have some pride in, and, and some knowledge on, on how long the thing will last. People we find, you know, at what is the warranty on this? And, and what, what we need to do is actually start talking about a design life and then look at the operational life. You know, the design life will be based around the, the materials that you're using. And right now, you know, people are astonished when they say, well, look, that roof, how long has it got? And I say, well, it comes with a warranty of 50 years. You know, that's that's straight from the manufacturer. These are very high-end materials that we're using, but, but not high-end cost because, you know, they're, they're very straightforward to produce now that all the R&D has gone into the, the actual uh, design of those, those roof tiles. And it's the same for, for walls. It's the same for windows and doors. So, you know, the, the main component part of the um, the homes that we, we build are, are well proven and, and come with very good warranties. So design life, you can prove quite easily. Operational life, of course, in the UK, there's there's lots of people living some very old, old housing. Right at this moment in time, the, the back wall of my 200 year old cottage it is currently on the floor as they're replacing all the beams, etc., because they've, they've rotted over the, the years. Future housing doesn't need to be like that. You know, we can be, build very well-designed contemporary impact homes that have a proven design life because of materials and the warranties. But then the operational life, if you look after your modular home, should be in the hundreds of years as well. And I say that because, you know, it was a local farmer whose family still live up the road who, who built the house that I live in, you know, and, and they were not builders. They didn't have access to the technology that we're talking about some two, three hundred years later. So I think for us, it's it's very important that we we're not building for 10, 12, 15 years. We're, we're building for hundreds of years and, and, and put a great effort into the, those initial designs. So we, we meet and exceed the specifications set to us I, I feel that's important as well because sometimes you're dealing with traditional contractors or traditional architects who who have and quite rightly so a traditional method of doing things whereas here in the, the modular world it's it is slightly different and i'll give you an example and i and i, and I know if if my Irish partners hear this podcast, they will be on the phone immediately agreeing with me, but after shouting at me. When you take a modular system to a, a, a traditional contractor, it's a change. It's a sea change for how you operate on, on site. And you've got to pay attention to that because we're a manufacturer. That's, that's our comfort zone and kicking around wacky designs and making them real 
uh, and then finding the materials and our technologies to, to meet those design aspirations, let's call them. What we are not is, is a builder. And that's where we have found the greatest transformation for us is rather naively, we thought we could knock on main contractors' doors in the UK and Ireland and across Europe and, and say, hey, have a look at this. Isn't it wonderful? We, we rapidly found that doors were closed, calls were not re returned. Uh, and we thought, oh, we, we, <clears throat> we've bodged this up a little bit. What, what's, what's gone wrong? And it was then that we suddenly realized that we, we were asking people to change their ways on construction sites. And we, we the, the consensus was that it was our responsibility to, to get out there. And what it made us do actually was, was change or tweak slightly the, the way that we wanted to operate significantly in the United Kingdom and Ireland. And now we are partnering or joint venturing with contractors. We have our people as project managers on the construction site, as well as the manufacturing site. Uh, and, and this is the key element for all the accountants at, at various stages of, of any project. The bean counters will, will, will you know, be looking at spreadsheets going, well, you know, this, this isn't working, we're losing money, et cetera, et cetera. The key here for us is to get the two construction sites, or rather one construction site and one manufacturing site working together so that the wheels are turning at the same speed. If you can achieve that, you're off to a great start because then you're pulling in all the other elements that are important to modular manufacturing. Uh, and it's uh, having the right contractor or partner to, to build the, the project. And that could be that you're doing enabling works or, or civils, but you, you're controlling the site right from day one. You then add in the design and the architects, and, and there are surprisingly very few architects out there in the globe that, that have done modular projects. So if you've got a traditional architect and a modular manufacturer, but all you're doing is creating friction points, to be honest, and that's going to delay your project. There are some fantastic architects out there that we're working with at the moment who totally get that there's there's two project sites, one in the factory, one, one on at the actual site of where you're building. I think throwing into that mix as well, that the changes that even the construction industry uh, have been going through, I think gone are the days where, uh, you know, those sort of, 30 to 40% margins were, were acceptable, you know, and, and there's been some fairly big heads roll uh, over the past few years of construction giants who, you know, were operating at one and 2% margins. And, you know, that's not sustainable. So I think that the whole industry is transforming, actually, and we've got to keep a pace with it. The way that we've looked at it is how do we do our little bit? And then how do we make it easier for the construction piece? How do we make it easier for the procurement, the engineering, manufacturing, architecture, all the stuff that you know we, we say that we're good at. But to a certain extent, up until about a year ago, it, we, we weren't that integrated ourselves. I feel that a, a lot of time has, has gone on the, the sort of inward stream of integrating ourselves as a technology company. To, to meet the, the future demands that you know are already starting to appear. BIM, of course, in, in manufacturing is now um, the, the gold standard where all the information about a project is held on a database. It's accessible by a variety of stakeholders. So where we're coming from is, is integrating BIM into all of our processes and, and being able to press a button and sending all that information directly to our manufacturing plants and to our partners. Now, now hang on a sec. When you say BIM, do you mean something like a bill of materials? What 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 do you mean by BIM? So BIM is the if you take let let's say a, a large impact uh, housing program in um, in the UK or, or Ireland or America or North America, Canada. To, to get to a point where I'm manufacturing, I actually need something called design freeze. It means that at, at the client, the architects, the program directors have all agreed how this house is going to look. Let's say it's two-story, it's got a red door, it's got argon-filled, net-zero windows, it's got a lovely floor in the bath, bathroom, it's using a, a Bosch 
appliances in the kitchen all this information down to the the, the, the smallest nut and bolt needs to be agreed and, and normally that's where the architect would come in and do the full design and then produce a bill of quantities a scope of supply as you can imagine there would be revisions and changes all the way through the point until we have that design freeze and the client says that's exactly what i had in my mind's eye now you can imagine that there is a, a horrific dump of project information and up until maybe 18 months ago that that was controlled by somebody in the back room uh, you know using a quill making sure everything's signed and 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 dated and somebody's cross signed it because there's been a I hope not a quill tell me not a quill Stephen. <laughs> uh, uh, 100% a quill um and, and my when this podcast goes out there will be people shouting at me um because i've i've pointed the finger i think right now that digitization of the whole process through building information schema and, and our ability to then integrate our systems, our procurement system, our shipping system, our engineering and manufacturing systems into that is, is going to pay dividends. I think that sort of then, where do we go from here is for us the, the, the big question because we, whilst we're a manufacturer and we're a modular light gauge steel company, our growth is highly dependent on emerging markets and being able to keep a pace with the demand for at what our clients perceive as impact housing or, or hospitals or offices or, or creation of, of additional space. And I think whilst we've been doing modular for hundreds of years, there is still a, a lag. And it's, it's well known within the industry that we too have labor shortages. You know, we, we, we can't get the right people and we can't get the, the, the relevant trained people into our, into our factories because there hasn't been, and, and talking from a UK perspective here, but it is global, there hasn't been the investment in the, the, the youngsters coming through uh, the schools, the colleges, the universities. And at the same time, if you look at modular manufacturing, 90% of it, there's an awful lot of hands-on. There isn't the robotics in there. There is not the automation that you see in other industries, and, and for very good reason. I'd point out that there's a couple of modular companies who, who do automation brilliantly and they're very successful at it. And we can only gaze at them at, at this time and place um, because that's where we would like to be a lot more automation. But you've actually got to control what's being delivered. You've got to control the project sites. You've actually got to own those project sites to say that this is a two-story home and we can automate X, Y, Z and, and out it comes. What you find is that with some of the, the, the smaller guys and girls, such as us, we do a lot of bespoke projects. We'll do 20 units of X or, or 15 units of Y. It then we change up when we get to you know, the 50s and the hundreds of units because we're doing a lot of processes repetitively, and that's where automation comes in. But I think as a whole, the modular marketplace most of us would turn around and say, you know, we are lagging, but because, you know, the take up of impact homes and modular systems is either not there yet, or very much that we're doing highly bespoke projects such as healthcare and hospital projects, you know, you're doing one ward or one GP surgery, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You're not doing hundreds of them. That will change predominantly because of the, the the global demand for quality um, housing, quality builds. Uh, you know, there's there's some huge markets starting to open up now for for all of us actually. Leads me to a question I had for you about the different, the very different types of partnerships you're able to forge internationally. So obviously, all the way from somebody can con contract you in the UK and you can ship absolutely everything, manufacture everything in the UK, put it all in shipping containers and even send some of your own personnel to assemble on the other side through to partnering with local groups uh, where they take on much more of the manufacturing locally. Can you tell us a bit about the differences or the range of types of partnerships you can set up? Yes, of course. 
we had a good look at this about three or four years ago when all the doors were closed on us and, and we, we thought we were doing something completely wrong, which we were. And it was at that stage that we had a really good opportunity to sit down as a, as a company, as a team, uh, and, and, and hear everybody's ideas uh, around how, how to behave. We know that there's been some huge M&A movements in, in the, the, the manufacturing um, world. We, we know there's some Goliaths out there that are just, you know, very good, really well backed, uh, and, and actually have control of their forward markets as well, so they know what they're, they're going to be delivering for the next 10 years. We knew that we wanted to be slightly different in that aspect because there was a, an investment in the technology that we wanted to see being used. And, and if our impact technology is being used, then hopefully homes are going to be built uh, wherever we are. Coming back to that carbon footprint, it seems absolutely wasteful that you know we, we try and tie somebody into our factories in Europe when they're halfway across the world in, in Africa or, or Middle East or, or, or you know, the Americas. It's, it's madness. Critically, our technology needs to be easy to, to be used because the trades are not there anymore for the construction site itself. So we don't want to have uh, lots of costs when it comes to individuals you now having to put up our, our kits or, or take our kits off a crane and, and pop it on a, a hard standing. So we wound all this in together. And actually, that's personified us to this point because one size doesn't fit all. We're, we're generating a new business in half a dozen different markets. And, and people want more, want less, want something completely different. And, and actually, it's for us to, to be able to be flexible. For Ireland, we're, we're very fortunate to have formed a, a joint venture company over there that's a, a manufacturer and a, a constructor. And that's the right way to culturally approach any country, I, I feel, because the local partner leads, understands, you know, there's the silly things like building regs and, and codes and which way, you know, which side of the road to drive on. It's, it's the very basics that you could get bogged down in if you sat purely in the UK. Well, you even mentioned to me sort of cultural differences around what housing should look like and building materials and, and really yeah. understanding that local culture, right? Yeah, it's, it's vital that um, for, right from the, the get-go, we get feedback from our partners elsewhere. And, and of course, we're a manufacturer, so we, we white label and, and people come to us and, and they, they, they quite rightly stamp their name on our kit. But that's only right and proper because it's it's their lead, it's their design. You know, we we're providing the technology and the the hardware, let's say, to to meet their criteria. You know, there's we we export all over the world, and we're in a good position because and there's a saying over uh, here in the UK: we we don't want to eat everybody's breakfast. Uh, we want to be a good partner. If you want a full turnkey system with a, a kitchen, a double bed, a, a recliner on the on the veranda. We can do it. We can do all of it. But if you just want doorknobs, we can do those as well. And and I or sofas. That, you told me couches, right? Yeah, we've got <laughs> couches. Um, they're called couches now because they're they're heading to Canada. <laughs> we, of course, we're we're forever changing as well because we and we don't often we, we're not always right at all. But I think I think that the COVID period. We, we started looking at our supply chains and, and what we were doing. And, and, and up to COVID, everything was fine. And then COVID struck and everything wasn't fine. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's like for like stories out there where we could all sit around with tears in our eyes and talk about the ones that, that got away, projects that is. The, <laughs> um, and, and again, a, a little bit, bit of navel gazing isn't a bad thing if you've got the time. And also to, to get, an external view, you know, people who are perhaps not in the modular market, you know, to, to get their, their feel for, for what's going on. So what we did, we, um, we moved some of our operations to a Freeport area in Aliga, uh, which is just north of Izmir in Turkey. The reasoning behind that is right at the end of the, um, the Silk Road. So lots of goods are coming in and out. And we widened our family of both partners because we can't be successful without local partners and that, that cultural piece that we, we spoke about. 
but we also strengthened up on our supply chains and it meant bringing more more companies onto our supply chain and they are global companies they they do everything from couches uh, to, to very nice kitchens to beds and chandeliers if, if that's what you want what it meant was that we started getting more competitive because we were driving down our, our pricing and whilst we'll, we'll say to any of our partners you know this is our core we're going to build you a small house for, for canada and they will come over and they'll go can you can you direct us into the, the kitchen space you know we, we want to we want to really nail down our kitchen supply and we're we're never going to force it you know we'll say have a look at these guys let's see if it mix, mixes in well with with your expectations so our supply chain is is growing now we've actually called it a builder's union um, because i i want everybody to feel part of the team oh you know when there's success i want everybody to celebrate but getting that success it there's a there's a trail of failures behind us uh, and and we've learned from every one of those failures and, and changed our tack accordingly i think by breeding that builder's union um, and it's the, the business to builder company that we, we, we set up and headquartered in, in london that gives us global reach to to be competitive in our marketplace. Of course, there's gonna there's always going to be, you know, other competitors that we just can't go against. It's a race to the bottom for us. And whilst we we had a go at it, it just didn't work. We we weren't. Our focus significantly on the impact housing is to deliver quality that either we're putting our name to or our client is putting their name to and if you if you think that some of these homes um, are going to be used by by some of society's people that need it the most you've got to get it right it's got to be good so yeah we we can't go down that uber uh, competitive route it's just not us so, yeah. i wanted to I wanted to ask you about a couple of stories you had mentioned to me earlier. One was about, I think, hurricane-proof housing, partly relating to a COVID story, in fact, right? I think you had yeah. shipped shipped some hurricane-proof housing. Was it to the Caribbean? Yeah. Tell us have. that story. And the it was just as COVID struck and everybody was, was told to remain on their island. And the unfortunate circumstances was that um, the... the, the construction team was on one island and the project was on a separate island and, and COVID stopped uh, all, all movement between the islands. Now this this to us was a, 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 a very much a, a sort of moment where is have we been telling the truth? You know, we think we have, but have we been telling the truth about how easy our stuff is to put together? This is of course one of our flat pack options and we we took it on that the, the end user, the, the family whose home it was to be built, uh, who had no construction background whatsoever. We managed to train them and construct the house, house using uh, Skype communications. No, no special tooling, no heavy plant, and that's for all of our projects actually. So whilst it's absolutely amazing what they achieved, uh, absolutely amazing, it helped us to better our practices in, in certain areas and I think it, it gave us a, a different perspective on where we needed to take our technology on, on the next steps because if we can if we can cut down times on the construction site then we're going to be more competitive without the loss of quality without the misuse of of you know uh, lots of concrete and, and lots of steels etc etc we, we can drive those economies of scale, even on small projects, because you can be watertight in two days and, and finished in seven with a flat pack. On volumetric, slightly different because it's big shipping costs these days, horrific shipping costs these days for, for you know, large, anything larger than a 40 foot container. Um, but I think for volumetric, that's, it's, there is still a huge market there because people don't want to, to wait three, six, nine, 12 months for, for a, a hotel to be built. They, they want it in, in months, not, not years. And, and if you can uh, volumetrically produce a three-star hotel, uh, all the rooms plus a nice reception area, et cetera, et cetera, pile it all onto a single ship and, and sail it from A to B, then you're, you're onto a win. I think some of the, the modular companies who are 
very volumetric focused have got some fantastic technologies and some really bang up to date notches on the desk where they've they've delivered really quite lovely projects you know and, and you without being a construction specialist you'd you'd struggle to see that it's actually modular you know until you get in there and, and understand that the hotel was built in um, eight weeks or, or or whatever you know with with bums on seats as they say um, incredible now on that point of the range the modular type of range between a hurricane proof house in the caribbean that a family literally compiled themselves through to hospitals and hotels you have i think a landmark project in turkey can you tell us the story about that yeah so right at the very start of our our journey um and we were coming off the back of of some really scale refugee camps and from from that side of life and that marketplace it's it's very much a a donor's perspective on on what's required and where they want to put their money uh, and from the donors it, it was decided that they wanted to build a world-class orphanage village that would be fully modular and and actually would be there for the long term forever basically. let's talk li- lifespan what, what do we mean by the lifespan so design life i think on that one was uh, 65 years operational life it will be there forever and and what we actually did we 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 put our monies where our mouth was on, on, on that one particularly because we built a factory close by to then get the factory manufacturing at the same time as the construction uh, uh, w- was happening. It was it was a, a bone system uh, that we used, which is, again is a massive Meccano set. But I think the achievement there, 56 double villas, uh, heavily focused on children having their own space. Uh, two schools, a small hospital and clinic, offices, and a logistics hub to, to support that. We were very fortunate to, to win the job. We were very fortunate to deliver the job. I, I think at the same time, the New York Times had, had done a piece on us for the perfect refugee camp. For us, thank you very much. But but the orphanage, uh, it, it really hard-focused us as individuals uh, onto its delivery and what the outcomes were once it was built. And that was taking literally children with nothing and giving them a, a point, a point in life where things could change. I, you know, and that's, that, that driver for us is, is the, the impact and why we've, we've heavily focused on impact housing, small housing, highly specialised housing, you know, such as the, the hurricane-proof systems that we have, but more so, you know, it's what we're not we're not defiantly going against the grain here. The construction industry is does what it does. The the behemoths that that are well known in the, the construction industry globally, you know, they've got very good businesses, et cetera, et cetera. I think for us, where we are is in in the impact position of being able to change lives through our technology. And again, we, we hope that there, there are like-minded people out there that, you know, what, would want to come and have a chat with us because actually, you know, and, and it's p- people will, will talk about factories costing 300 million and, uh, you know, $250 million for this and $40 million for that. And you know what, if, you, if you've got a shed, big shed, you could have your own modular factory tomorrow significantly with the right partnerships, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a graded step up here. And I think that's that route will drive lots of smaller new modular manufacturers who will look at some systems and go, yeah, we, we want to go that. We, we, we want to go down the wood route. We want to go down the light gauge steel. We want to produce where we're going to be building these homes, you know. So, what you know, <clears throat> put up a big shed. Let's get on with it. That's our view. Uh, and we're not trying to... <laughs> we're, not, we're, <clears throat> we're not trying to uh, disrupt anybody. There's so much demand out there. Um, That's incredible. That's interesting, which actually it leads me to one of my next questions, which is, are there particular resources that SG Modular are looking for in terms of either employees, capital, partners in specific regions? You know, what are the maybe pain points for SG Modular? If, If somebody were listening to this podcast and were to reach out to you, what would you most want to hear from people about? 
I think for, for us as a as a team and, and we're really really fortunate that we we've, we've got a, uh, a multicultural team we are very open on diversification very much so and there is the amount of youngsters that we've recruited over the, the, the past and I say youngsters because as soon as I'm in their presence I feel incredibly old I think that the modular from our perspective on partnerships that we run an open door policy if if we can help you if, if you've got the right if you've got an idea around impact then then please come have a chat um, I suspect a bunch of people with sheds will be calling you right after this <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've, got I've, got yeah, I've got a warehouse that's empty no problem let's, let's, let's um, I think globally again there's you know there's you know People talk about the, the housing crisis in the UK. There is a housing crisis because we haven't been building housing. I think on the levelling up and, and um, you know, that's the, the politician's great cry at the moment. It's funny. It is funny because they, they're trying to move out of the southeast uh, and, you know, concentrate on the north, concentrate on the, the, the southwest, etc. And it just isn't happening. And it won't happen quickly. I think that's, you know, we've got to be pretty... Um, just take a, a very wide view of this. If, if you want to level up, then there's got to be investment in, in the UK. But let's let's talk about the global situation on, on housing. I think 2030, 2040, 50% of the world's under 25s will, will reside in Africa. You know, Will uh, reside where? Sorry, I missed that. In, in, will reside in, in Africa. If you look at its impact housing, let's, let's forget about social housing. It, it carries too many stigmas for, for everybody impact housing need in, in the UK, you know, it's, it's 150, 200,000 a year for the next 15, 20 years. Never going to achieve that. Not the way that we're doing the market at the moment. If you look at the Americas, even young professionals are struggling to get onto the, the, the housing ladder. And that's why, you know, we've, uh, with our Canadian partner, we started off looking at some very grand um, <clears throat> villas and, and six-bedroomed beautiful homes and post-covid or wherever we are today on the covid ometer uh, we're now delivering you know roughly 500 small homes a year to, to canada and you know there's there's no reason why we wouldn't start to manufacture there in due course and it's small homes that the, the individual or young couple can can you know take on and and use as a springboard i think so small homes it is a is going to be a big requirement and small homes don't necessarily need to be small. They can be very well designed, we, we feel, and, and very contemporary and have fantastic operational lives, uh, you know, hundreds of years. So in Canada, are those uh, remote or city? Give us some context around what the where, where those 500 homes will be situated. So we're very, very lucky to have a developer based in Toronto. Again, uh, culturally, comes from a traditional background of, of large construction. Um, so Toronto is the, the start point, but, but already, you know, we, we know it's going to go much, much further. It, in Ireland, the various frameworks are, are there. It was, a, it was a strange one. The first, the, the very first modular project that the Irish government chose to do was on a, uh, a neglected piece of land. And they actually said, look, we, we want to put the houses up for maybe four or five years, but then take them down and, and move them elsewhere. And we, we looked at it and, and thought, you know, there's what we've got to build in here is the fact that at a certain point, they will be moved. And you don't just tear down houses. You've, you've got to actually engineer that into the design line of the units. And that in itself presented a couple of challenges, but actually helped us move our technology to its next natural position. So, yeah, those, those houses can be stripped down into a flat pack popped on the back of a lorry in five or six years time and, and moved to the next spot but without a loss of quality or the u values etc etc yeah it's it's really interesting because i you know we certainly feel there are there are different challenges we feel uh, for our technology and then the wider space with with wood and clt and and heavy gauge steel etc and, and that's without even looking at the the big projects that we're seeing in the, in the world at the moment now, is, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would want the world to know about, about SG Modular? 
I think I think that traditionally wise, there's there's always going to be a transformation piece when you when you take on a relationship with a modular manufacturer. Thick things won't be right until after the, the second or third project because people, both sides of the coin, will be catching up with one another. Um, so there's there is a transformation there. If you were to boil us down, I think more I, I personally think more of us as a technology company now. Um, because if we can get into bed with the, the right partners and, and actually treat it as a marriage, the, the transfer of that know-how, that technology can be very straightforward and, and very fast. On the manufacturing, the easy bits can be done anywhere in the world, um, you know, with a, a computer-operated uh, metal bending machine. The hard bits, you know, we can do until you've got the right staff trained up to do the hard bits. There's, there's lots of ways of balancing relationships in this day and age to achieve success for everybody. And that includes the, the client and most importantly on impact housing, the, the people, the families who are going to live in our, in our homes. What, what would be the best way to reach out to you, Stephen? Or if, if somebody wants to learn more about the company, where should they go? So there's, we, we've got a couple of websites these days, but just pop SG Modular UK into your browser and, and that will find us. All the contact details are, are, are on the, the websites. Business 2, as in, as in the number 2 builder, gives you the, the overview of, of our turnkey supply chain and, and the services that we provide into the, the marketplace now. Wherever you are, actually, whether you're in, in, in the middle of Suffolk or, or out there in Arkansas, we, we're more than happy to have a chat because there will, I don't think we're ever going to give you a four-course meal, but we can certainly manage the starter with you. And you'll see something that you like, and, and we, we're always there to, to make it happen. I think for us, there are um, specific countries that we'd love to be in. Latin America, definitely. America, uh, we've, we've had a couple of, you know, ongoing chats with people in America. Uh, and we know that actually uh, the adoption rate for, for modular in America is really getting ahead of steam. So America, fantastic. Elsewhere, of course, Africa and of course, the Middle East. And, and we're still rolling our sleeves up when it comes to developing nations. So, yeah, <clears throat> please just, and, I, and even if you've just got a, a question that will help your doctorate give us a shout you never know our paths will cross that's wonderful well thank you so much Stephen, for joining the podcast i really appreciate your time i think that sg modular is a huge growth story and an exciting technology with a range of potential globally so um i look forward to watching watching you guys progress watching your future successes thank you perfect jesse thank you as well and and yeah good luck all the best